Welcome to the No More Risk Better Accredit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm your host, Zach Griffiths. Joining me today is our head of insurance, Josh Esteroff. Josh, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it. Happy to be here. All right. So we've got a, a fancy name for today's podcast. We're calling it How to Cheat and Beat the AA Index. And we're doing that through a discussion on funding agreement back notes. And so for our listeners that have not heard of this product, Josh, can you just start us at square one here? Take us through what a funding agreement backed note is. I know you did a deeper dive on this back a couple of years ago with a primer, started to comment on it again a little bit more in your outlook, but give us the, the one to two minute summary here to get our listeners up to speed. Sure. Happy to do it. And I think uh, I think a lot of folks are not unique in, in not being super familiar with the space. And in fact, we've we've held a lot of calls where we kind of do a little educational tour on it. But basically, funding agreement back notes or FABNs for short, they're a specific type of issuance you're going to see in the insurance sector exclusively. So in short, an insurance opco, the operating company, they're going to issue a debt security with the idea of leveraging the opco's rating profile, which is often A or AA, and then taking the proceeds from that debt issuance and investing it in securities yielding more than the funding cost. And it's unique to the insurance sector because it's functionally guaranteed by a specific insurance operating company. And because of regulations in the insurance sector, it's basically treated as an insurance policy by regulators. And that carries with it all sorts of benefits, and some of which I'll get into in a minute. But point being, in some cases, uh, the FABN market can be a little bit of a cheat code for investors who are, let's say, either comps versus an index or for whatever reason, looking to beat some benchmark rate. So briefly, I'll give an, uh, an explanation of the FABN's kind of from the perspective of both insurer and investor. And, and starting with the insurer, the FABNs, they're basically a spread product and it enables the insurer to leverage their own investment capabilities and know-how and invest the proceeds from these FABN issuance uh, into assets generating higher yields for the insurer than, than the payments they owe to investors under the FABN issuance. And a lot of times they're, they're very closely duration matched. So given that the FABNs are backed by an insurance opco and not the holding company, the ratings for the FABN issuance, they're going to be two to three notches higher typically than hold co-debt. And in some cases, what's happening is the insurer is able to issue at more favorable interest rate than ordinary senior uh, unsecured issuance. And through the FABN mechanism, an insurer can borrow, let's say, for example, at an AA rating, AA rating, and invest the proceeds into a basket of, let's say, A or high triple B credits. From the perspective of investors, these FABNs allow an investment in a high quality security, and it typically offers more competitive returns than, let's say, treasuries, or alternatively, for our discussion purposes, investors can beat whatever the appropriate index is from, for example, the A or AA corporates or 
or financial indices. And so the strength of the insurance operating company backing the FAA band program, it's transferred through this kind of SUV mechanism. And remember, you know, a second ago, I kind of mentioned some of the benefits for investors. Well, given that the, the program is functionally treated as an insurance product from a regulatory perspective, investors are benefiting from a claims position that ranks parity with policyholders. And it's generally speaking, structurally senior to hold co-debt. So hence the insurance opco rating for the FABNs, again, about two to three notches higher than the hold co. And, you know, connected to this too, maybe insurers are also benefiting from just the regulatory oversight at the insurance opco level. Great. Thanks, Josh. And so just thinking about the incentive for these insurers to issue these FABNs, is it, is it kind of simply that favorable regulatory treatment on top of the ability to essentially issue debt at a lower all-in yield or tighter spread than, than what they can earn on in their investment portfolio? Or is, is there anything else that we'd be missing in terms of why an insurer might issue these kinds of debt securities? Yes. I mean, there's there could be a few reasons that they issue them, but but you're right in that they're they're treating it functionally as a spread product, you know, issue at a at a double A funding cost and invest a, in, in a lower ratings band. And if you've got investment capability, especially if you can go a little bit into private credit, well, that can be um, an attractive return profile depending on all sorts of other macro factors. You know, what else you can use your capital for? So they're they're always hunting for this kind of highest and best use case of capital. So that that's going to drive some of the supply and the macro environment is also going to have an impact on investor demand as well. Great. So having gone through the primer that you put out back in 2021 or 2022, it was, I saw that there was plenty of issuance prior to the financial crisis that eventually dried up following the financial crisis for various reasons and really came back into vogue in 2020 and 2021 when we had super low rates with central banks taking the policy rate to zero and buying bonds through quantitative easing to deal with the challenges of COVID. So kind of take us through what record issuance looked like back in 2020 and 2021 to sort of frame up the size of this market and just give us a high level of uh, overview of, of why you think it's coming back into vogue now uh, to start 2024. Yeah, sure. So why don't I kind of backtrack all the way to the financial crisis? And, and, and so this was still a popular kind of instrument leading into the financial crisis. And then post-financial crisis, we saw clearly just a really big pullback. And, you know, we saw this across a whole spectrum of industries, just this recalibration. And, and so for the insurance sector, that meant that, you know, historically, some of the more prolific issuers, let's say a name like AIG, well, they needed a bailout to survive. And so they, you know, they kind of became persona non grata amongst uh, the investment community. And, you know, other insurers like MetLife, for example, they were in reasonable shape, but you know, for a period of time, it was just the whole financial sector is just kind of avoided, and so issuance, re, you know, right after the financial crisis, kind of hit the low point, and, and really the space was ceded only to the highest rate issuers. But you know, with the passage of time, we saw the recovery in the financial sector and across other sectors, and, and by 2014, 2015, let's say, we really started to see the market back to life. And it, it wasn't really until 2020, though, that I'd say you know the space caught fire, so to speak, in, in terms of unique issuers, unique ratings, and just volume uh, of issuance and dollar amount. And then, you know, kind of circling back to more recent years now, um, 2021 was for sure a banner year. I mean, we saw issuance of nearly 60 billion and upwards of, of 20 unique issuers. And, and those were both record highs. Issuance has totaled about 35 billion then following in, in both 2022 and 2023. And it's true on a headline basis, that sounds like, you know, issuance volumes are down 50%. But in a historical context, that mid $30 billion 
area, that, that's actually pretty impressive. You know, each of 2020, 22, and 23, they basically tie for record highs, excepting 2021. Um, and we still saw 16 unique issuers in 23. Again, I think that's reflective of a, a menu of investment options that's really expanded over the last few years. You know, especially like I said earlier, the space historically was dominated almost exclusively by double A rated issuers. And, you know, now we're seeing A rated issuers and even a very small amount, granted, of, of but even in the triple B space. 2024 so far, we're, we're off to a pretty robust start. Been about $10 billion issued across, I think, 11 unique issues. You know, there's a lot of market dynamics in, uh, at play that's going to, you know, push and pull things. And, and maybe we can talk about that. But uh, so far, so good to, to start 24. Josh, just to follow up, when you say a menu of investment options, is that for the insurance investment portfolios? And so there are more opportunities for them to earn more on their investing side than they would have to pay on the issuance of these FABNs, just to make sure we're, we're getting that straight? Or did I confuse that? No, sure. And I, actually, I think you make a great point because the menu of investment options has expanded both for the insurer and for the particular you know, investor. So what I mean by that, from the perspective of the investor, well, now there's, you know, like I said, you're no longer stuck with just double A rated names. Now there's A rated issuers. There's many more unique issuers at different tenors. So a lot of more options for the investor as to which name they want to get into, what the duration they're looking for, what the ratings profile and the yield profile they're looking for is. So that, I think that's positive. And then from the perspective, of the insurance companies, yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly a greater menu for them, so to speak, especially as we consider the influx of, of, of interest from private equity and, and all the private credit story stories that are going on in the life insurance sector. So, so they've got more options as well and, and more opportunities perhaps to, to enhance yield. So I think we kind of hit on it there. Is there anything more that we should be considering in why there are so many new issuers of this product outside of, of course, there's increased interest on the demand side in terms of just kind of matching the, the supply and demand of investors looking to earn a high quality level of, of return while perhaps picking up some spread relative to other double A's and, and very highly rated names out there, especially when you consider what they could earn uh, compared to, to treasuries. But kind of bringing that all into one, is, is there anything that we kind of missed in terms of the discussion of why there's so many new issuers of this product? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And there's no single reason, but maybe there's a, a handful of drivers, each of which kind of play their part. And first, if you think about it, you know, especially in the wake of the pandemic, that's super low trade environment, you know, insurers in a lot of cases are just finding it increasingly challenging to, to sell traditional insurance products with, you know, favorable return profiles. It's so much about what kind of investment returns you can make. And so, you know, this contributed to some insurers looking at the FABN market and, you know, the potential for spread income there as, as the best use case for their, you know, excess capital position. Second, like I just touched on, and, and you had mentioned this influx of, of interest from, from the private equity community and the life insurance sector. And, and in some cases, that's direct ownership of issuers like K KR and Global Atlantic, for example, or in other cases, it's an asset management partnership, like is the case with a core bridge and BlackRock. But in a lot of cases, among the strategic motiva motivations from these PE entities is they feel that they can bolster investment yields. And in a lot of cases, through increased use of, of private credit or just more sophisticated investment capabilities. And, and so the FABN market kind of becomes this cheap funding source um, with an investment hurdle that, that really the insurer can easily beat especially if they're using element of an alternative investment strategy. And, and third, and I think there's a long way to go on this still, but investor education as to you know what FABN, FABNs are and how you play in that space and how they fit into investment strategies, it's coming along, but but I think there's still a lot a lot of work left to do. And most of my discussions with clients in this space is, is still very educational in nature, You know how to evaluate them, what are the regulations and so on. But I think over time, just this increased education of the investor base, that should be conducive for demand and supply as well. That's a great point. And when I think about 
just considering, you know, 60 billion of annual issuance amid peak times, maybe 35 billion has become a little bit more typical. How do you think about the trade-off between liquidity in the space, perhaps just general investment understanding out there relative to just simply buying a typical AA rated security? Not that there are a ton of AA rated names or bonds out there. How do you kind of think about how liquidity has evolved following those kind of boom years of issuance in the early 2020s? Yeah, for sure, liquidity has improved, but it's very security dependent. You know, I can point to an example for, you know, some of the more prolific issuers, let's say a MetLife, where in some cases, the FABNs can be as liquid or more liquid or nearly as liquid as the the vanilla senior unsecured hold co-paper. But in other cases, you know, for other issuers, that, that's definitely not the case. And liquidity is actually a challenge. So, you know, folks going into this game should should be aware. That in some cases you're 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 buy and hold whether or not you you want to be, but again very very security specific. It, it really kind of ranges the gamut depending on the issue, depending on the tenor, you know how much is outstanding, all this, all that. But yeah, that's that's definitely a key consideration. So it it, it should be kind of treated as this you know buy and hold space as opposed to this you know a space that you can trade in and out of regularly. But again, varies. And so just piggybacking on that, what what is the the most typical tenor of issuance or perhaps, you know, tenor bucket of issuance that we have seen recently? Yeah, historically, the space is, is kind of short to intermediate duration. A, a, a lot of times the FABN issuance is shorter in duration. We do see 10-year and, and even 30-year issuance. Those tend to be a little bit more rare. But even at the start of this year, we saw we saw a handful of issuers, MetLife, for example, they had a 10-year issuance. But the majority is really seven-year and, and really, to be truthful, it's really five years in it. That, that's the typical tenor, but there are other many options, you know, depending on what you need. All right. So I think this has been very helpful kind of framing up what's out there, how the market has evolved over the past couple of years and even over the past couple of decades. So now that we've covered that, our title is How to Cheat and Beat the AA Index. Can you take us through in a little bit more detail how these products are attractive to investors in high quality corporate debt and maybe take us through some specific names that you like in the FABN space that are best suited to truly cheat and beat these high quality indices? Sure. So unfortunately, it's cheating on the double A index. So nobody's going to retire early here. But but maybe your comp is going to be higher if you're, uh, you know, you're benchmarked against a specific index. So um, FABNs, maybe they can be a little bit of a cheat code in that respect. And, you know, it's a $175 billion market at this point. So let's not let's not ignore it. But yeah, let me walk through a couple of those examples like you asked. So let's say you need to beat the single A corporates or single A financials index. Right now, you know, looking at Bloomberg, the five year tenors um, for the corporates index, about 4.3% for the financials index. Index, the five years are up at about 4.6%. So compare that, let's say, to an A, a high A rated five-year corporate FABN, which is yielding 5%, or a similar high A rated five-year FABN from Principal Financial Group, also at 5%, or a theme five-year FABN at about 5.5%. So just in this one example at the five-year tenor, we're already talking depending on you know which insurer you've chosen, but somewhere in the 40 to 115 basis points range for excess pickup versus those indices that I had mentioned. Um, so that's not nothing. And that's you know quite a straightforward way to, 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 to beat perhaps a, an investment hurdle. But alternatively, you know, let's look at, for example, the AA indices at the 10-year tenor this time, just an example. So that 
that's at about 4.5% for the corporates index and, and really about that level for the financials, the AA financials index as well. Well, a MetLife 2034 FABN rated low AA, that's trading at about 5.15%. Or here we're talking, you know, a solid 65 base points of incremental yield. And there's even higher rated issuers out there too, like New York Life, for example, that's AA at S&P and, and AAA at each of uh, Fitch Ratings and Moody's. They just issued a 10-year FABN earlier this year, and that's yielding 5% too. So in this case, that's still 50 basis points on top for a name that that would basically be AAA across the board, if not for uh, S&P constraining the, the rating to the sovereign rating. But but point being, I mean, I gave a few examples here, but like I said, this this menu of options is expanding in terms of issuers and centers. And in a lot of cases, it's, it's a way to generate incremental yield over even what the insurer's vanilla senior unsecured debt is trading at, despite the ratings differential in favor of the FABN. And again, that's going to vary a bit from security to security, insurer to insurer. And, and the point being, I very much like this uh, underappreciated cheat code. Yeah, we all love a good cheat code. And when I think about the opportunity of picking up what's really a, a decent chunk of additional spread on these very high quality products, one of the questions that kind of pops into my head naturally when I think about earning more spread in normal times is how does a security like this perform in stress times? And certainly last March and April with the fallout from the regional banking crisis was a, a fairly extreme example of this. And I know we've already gone through liquidity has improved in the sector. I don't want to ask specifically how did these perform during that period of turmoil, but are they kind of resilient to spread? widening across the sector or is thinner liquidity in this perhaps less known product cause them to, to widen out more? And, and I guess one of the risks to earning this additional carry is that if you were to have a big shift in market sentiment that they might take a, a bigger hit than similarly rated quote unquote regular double A and, and highly rated single A corporates. It's a good question. So historically, the life insurance sector is considered, and I think correctly, you know, a fairly defensive sector, which is supportive in, in risk-off environments. But but it kind of depends on on the source of the stress. So the banking crisis that you brought up, you know, the insurance names are always going to trade at a, with a high degree of correlation to broader financials and especially banks. So we absolutely did see you know widening, but that wasn't you know exclusive to the FABN space. It was really just broadly across financials, both for reasons. That that I think are justified and, and perhaps reasons less justified. But in any event, I wouldn't say that they trade out of bounds with ordinary vanilla kind of senior unsecured type paper. And, and it depends on the specific name. But one of the one of the benefits is that because you're at the opco level, because you're parry with policyholders, in the event that you, you see an insurer actually get into a, a, a severe stress kind of environment, well, you've got first claims on all of the general account in line with other policyholders. So there's structural seniority there versus the senior unsecured paper. But it's important to do an analysis analysis kind of on a security by security basis. Because in some cases, when you're in the general account of that opco, if that's what's securing you, that could account for the vast majority of the enterprise's balance sheet, you know, a name like Athene, for example. But there's other insurers out there, for example, a name like a MetLife, where even if you're secured by the primary opco, well, they've got operations globally. You know, they're big in Japan, big in, big in Europe, and you're not necessarily in a position to have a claim on those non-US, non-primary opco cash flows. And so the analysis can be a little bit different there. But that's a long way of saying that I don't see anything in particular about the FABNs that causes them to trade substantially out of whack with how you'd expect um, the senior unsecured paper to trade. And that can of course, go in any direction, depending on kind of the macro backdrop. 
Well, that's really helpful, Josh. I think your point about specific security by security or issuer by issuer analysis is key. And I guess in closing, I'd suggest to any of our clients that are are more interested in FABNs or the life insurance sector broadly should reach out to Josh to set up a call more specifically and kind of get into uh, the nitty gritty. I know he is always around and happy to, to set something up to kind of go through these things in more detail and help craft what would ultimately be a helpful investment decision. So with that, let's wrap it up. Josh, I want to say thank you so much for joining again. As always, I I learned a ton and I look forward to having future discussions with you on this podcast. Absolutely. I appreciate you inviting me. and, And like I said, I always appreciate folks reaching out. I welcome it. So thank you again. And thank you all for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on No More Risk Better. Credit sites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is credit sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates. Thank you.